Lord, we come um, to something so simple and yet something that seems so hard for us. And so we come uh, with the simple request. Lord, teach us to pray as you taught your disciples to pray, as you desire to teach us still. Would you lead us to your very heart in prayer? Would you lead us to union with you, closeness with you? We ask this in your name. Amen. All right, as has become our, our uh, tradition here for our class, we're going to begin with a discussion question at tables. As you may need to join the table behind you. Um, the question for this morning is, when you pray, why do you pray? What, what draws you out to pray in the moments that you find yourself praying? What are, what are the, what's the impetus? What gets you praying when you pray? What starts you down that track? Make sense? When you pray, why do you pray? What makes you pray? Go. Okay, friends, let's gather our attention back together. If you didn't get to share yet, you'll get to share first in the next round, in the second half. Um, I should begin this teaching with confession, um, because this is the one teaching in the series that I did not want to do. Uh, because uh, I don't feel like I'm very good at it. I don't feel like uh, when there's always a danger at hiring young clergy and having young pastors, you know. Um, but teaching on prayer is, is the height of that danger. Um, because the wisdom is just not there. The maturity of the time, you know. Um, there's, I, I pray the Lord will use it anyway. Um, but I feel like this would be a much better class for Kay to teach. Or Luke or Roland, uh, maybe Corey, maybe. Um, a close examination of my prayer life shows the weakness of my own faith. It's an incredibly powerful diagnostic tool. The question of how is your prayer life? It shows how little I trust God, how little discipline I have. It shows how little love I have for him and for my neighbor. Prayer rests at the very heart of our being. It rests at the very heart of our walk with God. It's so fundamental to life with God, life as God intended it for human beings, that it should be compared with breathing. I mean, it's the core of existence. After all, it's God who breathes life into us in creation. And it's God's breath, in a sense, that we breathe back as we pray. We should be uh, filled with prayer. In our lives, it's to the life of our souls. Prayer is the same as breathing to the life of our bodies. And so when we look at prayer, we see the state of our souls and mind very often feels starved for oxygen, you know, gasping, struggling to pray. And it's not that I pray poorly, I don't think. It's not, there's not really such a thing as that. God is pleased with our prayers. You can't really pray poorly, whether it's the babbling of a child or the muttering of someone struggling with mental illness that you pass on the street, whether they're crying out in frustration and anger or overflowing with gratitude and praise. God is just pleased that we speak to him at all. The picture that comes to mind is the child learning to walk and the parents watching them. They're not disappointed by the stumbling and the falling. They expect it. They delight in the trying. They delight in the stepping along. Delighted by the progress. So it's not that my prayers are bad. That's not what really concerns me. It's just that I pray so little compared to what I think I ought to pray. I pray with so little conviction compared to the level of conviction that I expect to be present in the prayers of a Christian. My prayers, in a sense, give the lie to my heart. 
my heart that wonders if God is actually listening sometimes. Don't know if you know that feeling. The heart that wonders if prayers actually change anything. I wonder if you know that question. Most of us don't pray very well or often, and yet you can't really avoid praying, can you? You can't really escape it. It sneaks up on you. There are those moments that drag it out of you, moments of joy, of gratitude, moments of grief, of fear and doubt that force us past that inner resistance into actual prayer. Even those who don't believe in God find themselves praying from time to time. I remember eating lunch with a friend of mine in Statesboro who's an atheist, and he was talking about how hard it is to be an atheist. And he was talking about, um, which is is remarkably difficult, he said uh, one of the hardest things about being an atheist is not having somewhere to direct your gratitude. Being overwhelmed by beauty in different moments, the gifts of family and of life, and of not having anywhere to turn. See, my friend doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in prayer, and that his heart is drawing him to it anyway. It's something fundamental to the human being, and we can't just stop praying like breathing. It gets pulled out of us. And yet still we struggle to choose to pray. Still we struggle to make time. We struggle to want to pray. We find a strange resistance in ourselves to prayer that we struggle to name. We don't really know what it is, but it's there. And the result is that most of us don't pray very much. And when we pray, we often don't enjoy it very much. And I'm assuming that you're like me. I'm assuming that you struggle to pray. That's the person that this is directed to this morning. So if that's not you, praise God. Maybe take a walk in the sun and pray for us this morning. Um, But if that is you, then hopefully this will be an encouragement. Because this morning what I want to do is I want to actually look at three reasons that we don't pray. Three reasons that hold us back from prayer. And then ask the question, very simply, what does Jesus say in answer to those resistances? In answer to those roadblocks? In answer to those reasons that we don't pray? How does he speak into our lack of prayer? Our struggle to pray? in ways that call us deeper into prayer, into his presence. That's the goal for this morning. The reasons we don't pray and how Christ answers them. Let's look at the first one. The first reason we don't pray, busyness, right? That's the obvious one. And so it's the easiest place to begin. Busyness, we're all busy, we're all too busy, we're all frantically around, how are you running around? How are you doing? I'm tired. How are you doing? I'm busy. It's the default answer on our lips. And part of this is the product of our digital age, right? Constant contact to everything all the time. We are responsible for more information than we have ever been responsible for in the course of human history. We're responsible to maintain more relationships than anyone else has ever had to maintain in human history. In one book I was reading, This week put it like this, the time used to be a force, our time used to be a force that we lived under, a rhythm that we were naturally carried along with. You laid down in the darkness, you rose up in the light. I heard on average, 150 years ago, the Americans slept 10 hours a night, on average. But then we invented the clock, and that made time into a resource that we could manipulate and twist and squeeze the most out of. And then we invented light bulbs, 
that meant that the darkness could be diminished minute by minute, pressing productivity into time that would naturally have been rest. And then we invented the iPhone, right? A bit of a leap there. And the internet taught us that anything was possible. Anything was possible this very moment. And so there's no limit to our knowledge, no limit to our relationships, our abilities, or to our capacity. And so the only limit is our own willingness to work hard, and so we push harder. The tools that we expected would bring us leisure have not. They've brought us busyness. Any question we have has an answer in our pocket, which means there's never a need to stop or pause or wait or ask or seek help. Just press forward. And of course, our jobs encourage such behavior because it's good for the bottom line. And our devices remind us with lights and dings, like a children's toy, that there's something to look at, there's something to pick up and check. And our friends ask us why we haven't responded to that text from a week ago, or that message on Facebook or Instagram or that tweet. And so we're busy. And that keeps us from prayer. We're kind of caught in this conspiracy of distraction and busyness, and we can't seem to disentangle ourselves from it. At least we say that. At least we say that. And in our business, we do find the ability to make time for other things, don't we? We make time in our day for things like exercise or for shopping or for reading, or for study. We make time in our business for things that we think are important, right? For things that we think will give us something that offer us something. We can make room for things in our busyness if we think they will bring us value. And I think that shows us something. I think that shows us that busyness isn't something that we are trapped in against our will. Though sometimes it feels that way and we like to act that way. I think at least in part, we are complicit in our busyness because we think that we find our value there. In part, the world pushes us to be busy and we jump on that train because we think that in our busyness, we are creating value for ourselves. We think somehow in keeping busy, we are becoming more important or holding it together. We are proving ourselves by our pace of living. Being busy means that we're really making a go of it and we're earning our place. We're proving our salt. And so at the same time that we say, oh, I'm so busy, I wish things would slow down, we have a hard time actually slowing down when given the opportunity. We get to vacation and it takes us days to recover. We retire and we struggle with the question of what to do now because so much of our identity has been wrapped up in busyness in ways that are natural and normal and problematic. Now, why is it on average that we touch our phones 2,600 times a day? Touch your phone 2,600 times, and you unlock it 150. That's a lot. Is anybody making you do that? Is that a job requirement? Why do we check our email compulsively? I took email off my phone for Lent, 
and I turn on my phone and my thumb goes to where the email button was. Instinctively, right? Click to the right. Click, it's not there, which is strange. You know, it's a strange experience. Why is my thumb over here on the screen? <clears throat> Why do we get stuck scrolling on Facebook or TikTok or Instagram? We're looking for something, aren't we? We're looking for something that we can't quite define, but it eats us up when it's not there. We're looking for something in our busyness. We're trying to satisfy that sense that we are doing something, that we mean something, because deep down we feel like we don't, and deep down we feel like we're not doing what we should be doing. So busyness is called out of us by the world, but we are complicit in it, I think, in part, because we are looking to define ourselves as important people. But what does Jesus say? What is his response to busyness like that? It's short and it's very simple. And we say it every week in Lent in the comfortable words. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. I will give you life. Is that not the promise of the gospel? That you don't have to try any harder. That you don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to be the busiest person on the block. You don't have to keep up with every email or every old friend from college who's reaching out again. You don't have to earn your keep, prove your place. Isn't that the gospel that Jesus says, come to me and rest? It's notable, Luke talked about that this last week, that the life of human beings begins with rests. Created on the sixth day, on the seventh day, rest. The human being begins in rest, not in work. Why? Because our identity is not at work, where we're tempted to find it. God has a start on rest that we might know our identity comes from his love. It's given freely. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you life, give you rest. What keeps us from praying? Busyness. Busyness. And on the one hand, I think we're complicit in our busyness because we get personal meaning and satisfaction out of it. But on the other hand, I think we're complicit in our busyness for another reason, a different reason. Not because we're seeking to find something, but I think in part, the busyness is us seeking to hide from something else. Do you know this feeling? There's a sense that we all carry through our lives that we are afraid if we stop moving, it will suddenly be found out that we're not a very good mom. We're not a very good pastor. We're not a very good doctor. We're not a very good teacher. We have a sense that the busyness have to keep, has to keep going because if we stop, our hearts will be visible. And we're not sure what will be seen once they are. It's a sense of like life is this continually pumping out smoke, but we're afraid that if we stop pumping out smoke, there might not be a fire under it after all. And this, I think, comes to the second reason that we don't pray. The first is busyness. The second is that prayer is actually a very vulnerable thing to do. Prayer is a very vulnerable activity. I think in many ways, many times we don't pray because we are afraid of being found out in it, of being seen clearly. And of course, you can run through your prayers without being vulnerable. You can check off the list of people to pray, or pray for. You know, run through morning prayer in the, in the book and just read it line by line without ever being open to the Lord. 
without listening, stopping, without being open. But the true prayer of God, prayer that recognizes the Lord for who he is and that seeks to be present before him, is a frighteningly vulnerable exercise to sit before the almighty God before whom all hearts are open, all desires known, from whom no secrets are hid. Actually not hid, all on display. Every thought, every drive, every instinct present to him. If we rightly understand what we are doing when we come before God, it is a very, it's a very naked place to sit in prayer. And most of us aren't even willing to be honest with ourselves, to consider our grief and our pain, our longing and our joys. Most of us keep those things buried even from ourselves for fear that like Pandora's box, if they were to be opened one day, we'd never get them back inside. If I start crying, I'm never going to be able to stop. If this comes out, I will not be able to recall it. If I grieve, I might find myself angrier than I would like to admit. So we don't want to deal with it. If I start to ask, I might find my heart more shallow than I thought. My desires weaker. So it's better not to reckon with the deepest self. Just keep it deep. Keep it down there. But see, there's no evasion before our Heavenly Father. There's no ability to come before Him and not have those things exposed. When Christ says He is the light of the world, it's a beautiful thing and a scary thing. Because the light reveals. It makes plain. I find this vulnerability, the sense of not wanting to be vulnerable for God, is particularly present when I haven't prayed in a while. I don't know if you have that, that, that experience, but go away on vacation. Natural disciplines are disrupted. You find yourself not praying very well on vacation, and then you get home, and you just can't start. There's this resistance to starting to pray again when you've taken a break. <clears throat> what is that? I think that's wrapped up in this fear of being vulnerable. The sense of knowing that you've failed in what God has called you to. Failed to pray. That my heart is not shown to be as rich in love of God as I thought it would be. And now I don't really want to have to deal with that. I don't really want to be seen there. It's hard to start again. We're afraid to pray because we're busy. We don't pray because we're busy. We're afraid to pray because we're afraid of being vulnerable. But what does the gospel say there? What does Jesus speak into our vulnerability? I kept thinking about the life of Peter. Peter who Jesus calls to himself to follow him. And then at the very end, as Jesus is explaining his, in his imminent death, Peter says, it will never be, I'll die with you. And Jesus says, no, you won't, right? No, you won't. Before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times, right? There's no way to fake out of three times. It's very obvious. Three times, you've done it, Peter. Jesus knows. Knows Peter's heart. Knows where Peter will buckle. Before Peter buckles, he knows where it will happen. And yet, Peter is still his. And yet, he still has called Peter to himself. Even as he says, you will betray me, Peter says, no, I won't. He says, you really will. That is not a moment in which Jesus dismisses him. 
for his imminent failure and for as great a failure as there could be, denying the Lord himself three times in his hour of death and suffering at the same moment that he's dying for you. Jesus sees. Peter is laid bare. That's the moment when the cock crows that Peter weeps. What is happening? Peter has been laid bare. His heart has been known to himself. But Jesus already knew it. The Lord already knew his heart. And did that change his call on Peter's life? No. Jesus restores him immediately afterward in the resurrection. That means, friends, that what we are most afraid of has actually already happened. We're already known completely. Almighty God, before whom all hearts are open, all desires known, no secrets hid. That's already true. That's not dependent on you coming before him. He already knows. And that means that when we pray, we're stepping into the truth that he already knows and his love that is already present. What we are afraid of, ultimately, the only thing left to be afraid of is being vulnerable to ourselves. Really. Because we don't know, and that's scary. We don't know what we'll find when we sit before the Lord. What the gospel says is that he does know. And he's still there. Still with you. Still calling you to himself. And there's another kind of vulnerability that we fear in prayer, and that's the vulnerability of being let down. Isn't that a scary thing? You pray for the big thing, the big miracle, the healing, the provision, and you're afraid that it might not happen. It's another way in which prayer makes us vulnerable. I feel this constantly, and the crazy thing is, is that I've seen miracles happen in prayer. I've seen people physically healed. I've seen prophetic words spoken that immediately uh, like were known. Names that people heard in prayer that someone hadn't told them, but that were tied together. Like, I mean, I've seen God do miracles. I've seen it. And I still worry he won't. Because other times when I pray, he hasn't done what I've asked him to. I know he can. But I'm afraid to pray because to ask him for something is to climb out on a limb and wait. And sometimes the limb is springy. And that's frightening to be vulnerable like that. But what does the gospel say? What does Jesus say? Jesus speaks of the father who gives good gifts to his children. Gifts that if we were to give them as earthly fathers, earthly mothers, how much more will he give? He speaks of a God who knows what we need and not just what we want, and a God who is sovereign over all. What does the gospel offer us in our fear of vulnerability? A God who is good and who proves it by bearing suffering on our behalf. I see kids running into the playground, so we've got to move quick for this last one. We don't pray because... Uh, we're busy. We don't pray because we're afraid of vulnerability. Finally, we don't pray because we don't know how. We feel like we don't know how. We feel like we run out of words. We don't feel like we're good at it. You hear the preacher on Sunday morning, who's had time to script it, by the way, and think, oh, I can't pray like that. I can't pray in Old English. It doesn't come out in poetry like it does when he or she prays. Or we sit down in prayer and we run out of words and we're just twiddling our thumbs and it feels like it's not working. 
And of course, we talked about this already. It's difficult to do prayer wrong. The father watching the child learn to walk. There's no doing it wrong. It's cheering at every stand and every step. You can't really do it wrong, but still, it feels like we're doing it wrong. It feels like we don't know what we're doing. And so what does Jesus say into that hindrance to prayer? What does he say to that holdup? Two words. The first thing that he says is that he himself prays for us already. This is in 1 John. Jesus is our advocate with the Father. We say that in uncomfortable words too on Sunday morning. Hebrews 7 tells us that Jesus always lives to intercede for us. Always lives to intercede for us. Always lives to intercede for us. This is the miracle of the ascension, which we don't talk about very much, but that Christ is present before the Father, still in his body, interceding for us, praying before we pray. Romans 8, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. It's wrapped up the Spirit too. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, Romans says, for we don't know what to pray as we ought. Paul says we don't know what to pray. But the Spirit himself intercedes with us for, with groanings too deep for words. And this is a great mystery. But when we pray, we are not initiating something that has not already begun. When we pray, we are stepping into the prayers that Jesus is already praying for us. We're stepping into the prayers that the Spirit is already uttering on our behalf. When we pray, we don't have to know how to do it right. Because Jesus is already praying. We don't have to gin it up. We don't have to get it going in the right direction. You don't have to say it all eloquently. Christ says it for us. He's already praying. So the invitation to pray then is not an invitation for us to start something that we don't know how to do, that we're not good at, and that might not work if we don't do it right. The invitation to prayer is the invitation to join the love of the Trinity, the Father who speaks to the Son and the Son to the Father, to join with the Spirit who's already speaking, already praying on our behalf. And that means you don't need to know how to do it good. You don't. It's already in progress. Uh, I'll end with this. At, at Furman, uh, where I went to college, a bunch of friends and I would drive up into the mountains on the weekends to go contra dancing. I don't know if you've ever been contra dancing, but it's a strange blend of English uh, line dancing and French square dancing to bluegrass music. So just put that together. If you play, if you if you watch the uh, like Pride and Prejudice movies and you see the the, the square dancing call and lines. Imagine that sped up a little bit with bluegrass, and that's what you're talking about, and it is awesome. But the first time you show up, you have no idea what you're doing, right? And you try to jump in the line, and you're tripping and falling and stumbling. Um, what they do very deliberately, they have a little training at the beginning, but once the dance begins, the new dance, the old dancers, the experienced dancers, are specifically encouraged to find the weak ones, the new dancers, and to bring them on the floor, because even if I'm supposed to be leading, I can't lead. I don't know how to do that. Uh, but an experienced follow can lead me anyway, can teach me to dance in a way that I can't. This is the invitation that God gives us. He's calling us to dance in the Trinity, calling us into a dance that we may not yet understand, but that is open and available to us, that has already begun with partners that are already ready to carry us through. So I encourage you to pray. Um, 
If you have time for a discussion question and you don't gotta run get the kids or run over to the service next, the discussion question to close was supposed to be, what holds you up? What keeps you from praying? Any of these ring a bell or are there other reasons? And how might the gospel speak into those too?